There we go. So we're in the book of Joshua. And we would have a complete series up to this point on our internet website if I didn't forget to put the recorder on in Exodus. So I have to show up again. Uh, but in Joshua, we have a book that is, um, well, I, I guess you could call it um, a book of hope for victory over ultimate evil. In chapters 1 and 2, God instructs Joshua to send out two spies, and he does it secretly. And they are to look to the land as they await in Moab to cross the Jordan River. In chapter 4 and 5, Israel crosses the Jordan uh, on dry ground. And you can already see the uh, significance of that in relationship to what God did with Moses. So in like manner, Moses or Joshua is a man like Moses. Um, a man who is special in the presence of God. A man who is called by God, a man who will do the work of God for the people of Israel. Uh, 40,000 men will go with Joshua across that river. Chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, there is a special appearance of the captain of the host of the Lord that goes with Israel. Chapter 6 through 11, there's the conquest itself of, of Canaan itself, the promised land, the land filled with milk and honey. And then in chapter 11, verse uh, 23, is the, you could say, the summation point of the travels of the Jews within the land of promise and the victories. For Joshua literally says, thus the land had rest from war. Then after, after the point of that, you have the dissemination of the land in the second half of the book. So in one sense, the book is very short in terms of the conquest. And in another sense, it's very significant in redemptive history. The book of Joshua is filled with brave, heroic men and women. Because they didn't fear, because we all fear, but because they did fear in faith. In the book of Hebrews, we learn some more about how God views the time of the book of Joshua. The walls of Jericho, by faith, fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. So by faith, by faith, by faith. The story continues in the story of redemption from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. That is, if you're going to know the true and living God, the transcendent and personal God, you will live by faith and place your faith solely in Him alone. That is the railing call of the Reformation. And in one sense, you could say, Israel is living their own Reformation. This is the second generation the generation of those who left Egypt fell in the wilderness and were unfaithful. And all you have to do is read Hebrews chapter 4. They're dead in their trespasses and sins and their bones still lie there. On the other hand, the children of those who fell are the very ones who are now living this life of faith, saying we will go with God's new mediator, Joshua. As in all the Old Testament books, the Spirit of God is interested in telling us about so many different things. 
That is, that by faith we love God more than pleasure. We love God more than our family. We love God more than our nation itself. We love God more than our lives. This is really the, the um, you could say, the whole tenor of the book of Exodus and Joshua together. In other words, in that generation that crosses the river Jordan, they watch their parents die. And yet, by faith, they say, they failed, we will go and be faithful. It's very, very important for us to see this, because this is, this is something that, um, in one sense, there's a little parallel going on with what's happening in the world. The church is falling by the wayside in droves. The statistics are scary in relationship to what we hear about what the evangelical church even, let alone the liberal churches, are believing in terms of doctrine and truth. They don't believe at all. They say they believe, but they don't. And because of this, we're watching the church die in the wilderness of sin, just as the children in this revival moment watch their parents die in the wilderness. Go to Matthew chapter 10. Life is filled with choices for the Christian. To be faithful or not to be faithful. To love the Lord or not love the Lord. No man can serve God and love mammon, right? He'll either love the one and hate the other or hold the one and despise the other. We, like Joshua, have to choose to whom we will serve. The idols of the day what are offered to us, whether it's the God, the idol of Moloch or the idol of Baal in the wilderness or the idol of any other pagan polytheistic religion that's offered to us. Or today we are offered the, the humanism of the day, the worshipping of self of the day, of gender identity that we can make ourselves into whatever we want to make ourselves into and therefore we can be our own God. Choose this day who you will serve, the God who has written to you and I, what God's will is for us, or read someone else's book and then determine for yourself what you will make yourself into. That's the day and age we live in. So in Matthew 10, verses 32-39, Everyone therefore, Jesus says, who shall confess me before men... I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and his daughter, against her mother and a daughter, against the daughter-in-law, against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be members of his own household, who he loves, uh, whom he who who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Can you imagine what that? Older, or I should say, children of the generation that fell in the wilderness 
what kind of conversations they may have had with their parents as they became a little older and their parents were dying. And they had to choose against their parents to follow whatever Moses told them before he died in the wilderness. In Joshua 1, 8 and 9, God always tells you and I that life is filled with decisions and choices. <clears throat> verses, one, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not com commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. <clears throat> now I can tell you with certainty three times that phrase, be strong and courageous, is written. It is also written at least a couple times at the very end of Deuteronomy. It's very important. It's, it's interesting, we, if, if there's a pattern here when God spoke to Abraham. Do not be afraid, Abraham. He says, I am a shield to you and your reward shall be very great. We have to be brave in an era of paganism. And that's where we're at. I'm reading a book about paganism. <coughs> and uh, paganism basically has never left us. It just conforms and transforms throughout human society. It is only biblical Christianity that has somewhat muted it over a period of time, and now it's coming back. It's coming back strong. So we have the same challenges of the paganism of the day of Joshua, surrounded by nations that didn't believe in the God of Israel, and therefore they had to battle against them. Remember this, when John the Baptist died, Jesus quoted this. He said, The kingdom of God suffers violence, and violent men will take it by force. Either the church will take the world, or the world will take the church. There's a battle. The lines are drawn. They have always been there. In Joshua 24, go to chapter 24, very common verse. So we begin with obedience. God said, In your choices, Believe me, have your faith in me, obey my commands, I will not mislead you. Right? But what does Joshua say in chapter 24 and 13 through 16 to finish up the book? And I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you have not built, and you have lived in them. You are eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Now therefore fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Should be a memory verse of every Christian, probably. It's one of those, it's got that little kind of uh, rhythm to it where it's easy to memorize, right? As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. This is where Christians go to jail for believing and for acting upon 
in the faith in their certain circumstances in this world. In Canada, right? They're going to jail for basically declaring the faith. That may happen here, and it is happening here to a certain extent. Do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, Exodus 11, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, Truly they shall not enter my rest. Now we find this not in the book of Exodus, not in the book of Deuteronomy, not in the book of Joshua. We find it in the Psalms. Why is this important? We find it in the Psalms because the history of Israel is important to the new and next generation. There is always another generation. I've been friends with Mark Fuller for probably over 30 years now. We've been in two separate churches. I've been in three. He went to churches everywhere. And we're going to die in faith. And by the way, another generation at Sovereign Grace Chapel will take over. Right? Who will you serve? Right? As for me and my household, I say to young men, when I'm cold in the grave, I say to my dear brother right here, who's younger than me, and I say, who will you serve this day? The idols of the land or God himself, who's proven himself throughout the ages. And that's what the psalmist is doing. Do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. This is always the challenge from age to age. Even if God were to bring a revival in America for the next, say, ten years, and we said, wow, never expected that. Where did that come from, right? We would still be saying, remember, remember, remember. Why? Because there is always this ebb and flow of spiritual revival and spiritual decline. You should not be surprised when Peter said, he says, it is not uh, any problem for me to remind you of the things that you already know. What does Pat and me and Gary and other teachers like Justin say to the congregation when we preach either Bible studies and sermons? We are reminding you of what you already know. Exodus and Joshua is just one of those books that says, here's the culture not unlike your own, and here's a man not unlike you. And be brave and courageous in this life, and follow God in His commandments, and you will not go astray. Therefore, the lens which we are to look in the book of Joshua is the lens of Israel's new beginnings. The old generation has passed away, the new generation has come. And it's done, this, this new beginning is done by faithfulness to God in the face of war against the world, the sin and, sin and the devil. So what kind of people are we dealing with in the book of Joshua? Multicultural and pluralistic. Does that sound familiar? Right? Multicultural. There is not one tribe in Canaan that they're trying to overcome, kill. By the way, let me remind you as I did in Exodus, every man, every woman, every child will be dead or is called to be dead, which they fail in. And we must recognize God's hatred for sin. And yes, do not play or do not think how the liberals, like God hates the sin but loves the sinners. 
you have to parse that statement very closely depending on what context of your explanation is coming from within the Bible. And when it comes from the Old Testament, and I'm not saying it's not relevant in the New, but when you come from the Old Testament, God hates the sin and the sinner and they will be judged for it. And that is what hell is all made for. For the hatred of God against the sin and the sinners who committed it. So they're multicultural. It's not just one, uh, you could say, tribal-orientated, multicultural in terms of what are their intricacies of what they believe and who they believe in or what they believe in. Different gods, different culture. Pluralistically, they don't all believe in the same gods. They are polytheists. They have temple prostitution. And they have infant sacrifice, infanticide. They're haters of the Jews. They are anti-Semitic. Indeed, they have one thing in common also. And that is this. According to Joshua in chapter 2, verse 9, they tremble and fear the people of God. Is that still the case for today? We can ask ourselves. I have met people... Again, I've said this, I'm not boasting at all. I've, I've spoken, probably, <laughs> I've probably spoken to more people that are a lot more uh, intellectually uh, smarter than I ever thought of being. But I am a great testimony of saying the word of God silenced the ignorance of foolish men. He does it, God does it, all the time. You don't have to be brilliant to cause the brilliant to stumble and to become silent. Yeah, even if we don't see the, the fear of God amongst the nations like was in Joshua, you know, where they're fearing Israel coming in and conquering right. them, the fact that the modern world is so anti-Christian and targets it so ferociously bears witness mm-hmm. to the knowledge of how dangerous it is to their ideology. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The evil that awaits Israel will require Joshua to be strong and courageous. So he sends spies out and they become trapped. And they meet a woman called Rahab who is willing to help them. The author of Hebrews calls her a woman of faith. Her simple faith not only saved the two spies, but she saved herself in a certain way, is it not? In one sense... Of course, we know that God says faith is a gift of grace. But faith that is action shows how she saved herself in this sense of the armies are coming and your city, Jericho, is going to be completely destroyed and all your children, all your relatives will die. She fears God. She knows of the, of the work of God previously to this and she knows that he's greater than any pagan god in the land. So on the day that they cross the Jordan River, the Ark of the Covenant goes across the Jordan first. And by the way, it splits. They go across the river on dry ground. It, it I'm thinking of the right word, it stacks up in the north. Where, and by the way, this is flood season. So it was already overcoming its banks. So I can imagine there was probably judgment from the overflowing banks when God said, I'm stopping everything for my people and others will die 
for it. Think of that just as a principle or as an illustration of how God truly cares for his elect. God is, uh, or I should say, God's goal is multifaceted. I have three things that I've written down for you. First, it's to secure victory for the twelve tribes. Secondly, it's to exalt Joshua, quote-unquote, to revere him in the midst of the congregation of people in order to replace Moses, Moses as leader and mediator. Thirdly, God will be exalted not only amongst Israel, but the nations also. Psalm 46.10 says, Cease striving, knowing that I am God. I will be exalted amongst the nations. I will be exalted. So think of it. Think of your greatest fear about America. Think of your greatest fear about Western society and culture itself. Someone might say, well, we'll be overrun by the old Bolsheviks and the Russians and be overrun by, you know, um, the, the, the leader of China. And, you know, we might be all Hindu by the time we get done with the rest of the year if India gains more power. Uh-huh. Right? We start saying these things or thinking the possibilities of all these things. And yet every evil nation, and by the way, we have become an evil nation. We are no different than any other paganistic nation, whether communistic or whether monarchical or anything else. We become no different than those nations that deserve judgment. God is always doing everything within this life for his own glory and exaltation and for his own elect. Paul says, God knows those who are his, and let every man who desires to follow him abstain from wickedness. He wants us to follow him in that manner of holiness while we see and watch him work. There's one thing that, if I live long enough, I want to see what God does in judgment to America and to Western society. There should be, with every Christian, an expectation of it. Now, maybe God will revive us before. That's my prayer. But at the end of the day, we know God is going to deal with sin. He always does. So, we have fears. And yet we are called to be brave and courageous, Justin. Yeah, and a step further beyond just this life and this world. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a greater power than the things in this world that is warring against us. You know, mm-hmm. Satan who is trying, who wants to see us perish in hell. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can look at this account and say, "He who is with the Lord conquers." Mm-hmm. You know, so we do. We don't have a promised victory in America. Mm-hmm. We have a promised victory in Christ that we will make it right. to eternal glory to Excellent. heaven. Excellent. Yeah, for every Christian, there's all kinds of different fears that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I think the greatest. Uh, the best thing a pastor, uh, an elder can say to the congregation is don't love the world too much. Do not love the world too much. Now the morning of their crossing, God stops the flow of the Jordan River, of course. We should not be surprised about the symbolism, by the way, uh, that God is using when they cross over into the promised land. Twelve men take twelve stones and they pile them into the Jordan River while it's still dry as they're crossing. 
Interestingly so, when they go across, the Ark of the Covenant goes first. Stay 3,000 feet away from the Ark as you're crossing. What a massive line that had been as they were crossing. This is not just a short little bridge across the Jordan River. He dried up a massive area for the children of Israel to go to stay 3,000 feet away. Now, those stones, which by the way, that God uh, orders Joshua to have the men of Israel to gather into place on the riverbed, will also be 12 stones that are put in Gilgal, where the stones will also act in both places as a memorial to God's redemptive work and powerful redemptive work in using miracles. It will be a testimony for the world to see God's power to save. Let all the people of the earth know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Put those stones on the ground They will be a memorial. We go to our cemeteries. A memorial to a life hopefully and prayerfully well lived with an impact upon those who love them. Right? But there is a memorial that God has said that only points to me. And you watch what I have done. And let those stones cry out. And we shouldn't be surprised when John the Baptist comes on scene. Right? He says, you brood of vipers who warns you to the wrath come bear witness, I'll bear fruit worthy of repentance, is not God able to make these stones cry out? They cry out. God can even take the inanimate to cry out to bring glory to His name name of the fabulous and miraculous work that He's done in splitting a river, let alone a red, or the Red Sea. We also should take note of the symbolism of circumcision. And the reason why I say that is that they had to be circumcised. The new generation, the children of those who fell, had to be circumcised before they went into the land. Why is that significant? They're re-identifying themselves with Abraham's covenant. This is part of God's fulfilling His purposes in you, as the Old Testament says. He fulfills His purposes within Israel, but He's doing it in you in like manner, in a personal manner. You are not just a speck within the universe. And how did, how did uh, Richard Dawkins say, uh, you're just scum in a moderately sized planet. Right? Either, either you're that, and you have no value in this life, or God sees even your eye blink. And does He love you to that degree? So circumcision is very personal, of course. I don't, I don't desire to describe it to you. But they, dis, but they circumcise themselves, probably adults as well, as the children. Because they did not exercise it while they were in the wilderness. And you could say encircling the wilderness in rebellion. Remember Abraham... Remember that through you, Abraham's promise is going to be fulfilled. That your lineage will be as numerous as the stars of the heaven and as numerous as the sand on the sea. Lastly, they observe Passover before they go into the promised land. Passover was observed 
great redemptive picture that is there. It's a symbol to remind Israel of their exodus. God is the one who delivers you not only from a nation that enslaved you, but God is the one who delivers you from your sin. Our minds are drawn back to 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul tells the church, the fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses. Now they are being baptized, per se, in Joshua. They go through that river Jordan, and they're baptized now into his ministry, as God is revealing himself through Joshua. And as Joshua obeys the commands of God, they will see cities crumble just by simply walking around them with the ark. Therefore, Joshua has now come to be a type of Christ, delivering his people from the wilderness of sin, entering the land of promise. Now, a strange thing happens at Jericho before the walls crumble to the ground. Joshua sees a man with a sword who calls himself the captain of the host of the Lord. And he's going to go with him to fight which is the Lord's fight. Now, how significant is that, that when we battle the culture of today, that we're not fighting by ourselves, but the Lord is fighting with us? And then what gives us the confidence to know that that is actually true, that is actual reality for the believer? Because I can say that, but that doesn't mean that, you know, that experience itself says it's true, right? What makes it true? God said it was true. God has proven himself to me, right? Bodhi Bakum, when I did the sermon, I think around Christmas time, I'm not going to remember it all, but he says we, have, we, have, we actually have this historical evidence by reliable witnesses in the same lifetime of other reliable witnesses, right? We have the witness account of God's work upon this earth. Believe it or not, but I do, right? Believe it or not, but I do. Therefore, when God says, I am the captain of the ship, don't believe that car that drives behind, I should say by you, that says, God is my co-pilot. Because he takes seconds to no one. Right? Everything you are able to fulfill within this life for the glory of God, because that's the only thing that God will take credit for. He will not take credit for your sin is that God has done it for you, with you, and in you. Right? That's what he's done. He's done it for you, with you, and in you. You have no power. It's the reason why Jesus said, you can do nothing without me. Right? No man can receive anything unless it's given to him from heaven. Paul, Paul says it this way, very pragmatically. He says, what do you have that hasn't been given to you? Your house, your your, your car, you drove here by God's gift to you. Oh, I know you work for it, but don't ever independently say, I worked very hard for that car. Right? Even, I think it's James that says, do not say or go into the city and buy and sell, but say this, I'll go into the city and buy and sell. If, if the Lord wills, I will go into the such and such city and buy and sell. That's the language of the Christian who believes in the sovereignty of God. And it just occurs to me that uh, men and women try to take credit for that. In, in, in the political realm, 
people will say things, well, you didn't build that road. You didn't build that, you didn't put that uh, <laughs> building up to uh, be successful in your business and all that. They're trying to, I think, take God's place in that respect. Yeah. They're, they're trying to uh, co-op. I'm, I'm with you on that because sometimes I just, I just cringe when I hear a politician because, I mean, let's face it, the job of the politician is to boast about myself so I can improve my record in the presence of everybody who now should vote for me because I've done so much for them. <laughs> right? But the only thing that they're neglecting, which is the most important thing, whether conservative or, or, or liberal, is that you can't do nothing without Christ. Yeah. Even becoming a politician was by the very nature God's will for you. We've lost sight of God. At least, at least, <clears throat> and, and again, in early America, at least in early America, <clears throat> even if they weren't Christians and say they were deists or whatever else under the sun, uni- Unitarians or whatever, <clears throat> at least the word providence was commonly used. It was part of the vernacular within society. Mm-hmm. Why? Because, you know, when you could die in your 40s, you realize there's got to be someone... And something bigger than you. Right? I mean, you've got to have some hope somewhere. Even if you didn't believe in the transcendent personal God of Israel. That is now the transcendent personal God of both Jew and Gentile. So, the captain of the Lord of hosts is a very important pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And that God says, I will fight for you. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, when Paul tells the Corinthians, no temptation has overtaken you, but as is common to man. Of course, Paul's bringing you back to the wilderness experience. There's nothing in this world that, that can overcome you if you just put your faith in God. The same with Joshua. Do you believe that God can conquer a nation of giants? That next generation says, yes, we do. Right? Moses and Joshua both were not overtaken by sin when others were. That's what faith produces in a Christian. You know, when God tests us, he even chastises us, right? And in that um, Hebrews chapter 12 passage, he disciplines us, right? But what is the ultimate goal of that discipline? That we might partake of the fruits of righteousness, right? He wants you to be holy, the context of your life may be warfare and your personal commitment to Christ. But in between is God saying, in between all of the events of your life, I'm going to produce righteousness. Are you willing to go in the direction that I am bringing you? Because, by the way, God will have his way in producing righteousness within you, whether you... Obey his commands, know his commands, obey his commands. I put it in that order on purpose. And become sanctified by the word of God and the spirit of God within you. Or if you resist him and want to go your own way, he'll sanctify you in a different way because you're his child. Right? He will have his way with you. He will produce righteousness. So, now the campaign... um, to destroy every man, woman, and child in the land, by the way, is almost 
an afterthought in the sense of this. So much of the book is is devoted to the crossing that when the cities start falling, they're, you could say, almost anticlimactic because the people are viewed as faithful to this God who is a God of power. He's already proven himself. He's just going to do it again. The Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, they're all trembling before they even knock down the first city. Right? They're trembling. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty well known that an army that fears another army is putting itself at a disadvantage to even an army that may have less people. Right? Go to Revelation chapter 2. For the fun of it. something spiritually going on here that's significant in the entire book of conquest of the entire region of Canaanite region. And that is this, that God's wrath and anger against sin and the people who sin must be fulfilled, whether it's hell, ultimately for all, or in a specific historical context like Joshua. 20 through 22 But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, he's talking to the church of Thyatira, one of seven churches. Uh, by the way, there were more churches in Asia than there were these seven, but these are the seven that are picked out. <clears throat> he says, I have this against you, church, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. And I behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Evidently, there is a false prophetess influencing the church of Thyatira, not unlike Jezebel of the Old Testament. The thing is here is that God gives time even for nations to repent. The contrast here within the entire uh, book, especially the Old Testament as a whole, but literally that that is uh, the imagery is used even in the New Testament, is that <clears throat> God uh, views this world as a cup that is filling up in wrath. Only at a certain point in time does that cup overspill. And therefore, God is giving time for repentance until that time is over and the cup spills over and God disseminates his wrath. So therefore, that is what God is doing in the land of Canaan. His cup has over, over spilled, overflowed, you could say. Now, in Psalm 75, verses 7 and 8, it's a great text. It's worthy of going there. And we're looking at verses 7 and 8. You might want to actually memorize this one, or at least keep it in your back pocket. But God is the judge. 
He puts down one and exalts the other. By the way, he exalts nations for seasons, doesn't he? He lets their cup fill up more and more. He did that with Assyria. Think of it. When, when Israel went into idolatry, right? And over a period of time, first they lost the northern kingdom, then was it about 30 years later, they lose the southern kingdom. In all of this, the Assyrians were gaining in strength. Who gives them that strength? God does. So, even though he allowed Israel to become weakened, Assyria was growing to overcome the ten tribes in the northern kingdom. The same rule and principle applies to the Babylonians. While Israel was, was suffering under their own shoot, shoot me in my own foot sin of idolatry, right? Babylon, Babylon, the Babylonians are increasing in stature and power to overcome the Assyrians and then to come south and destroy Judah. Then, in Psalm 75, the psalmist recognizes that God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts the other. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. It is well mixed and he pours out this. Surely, all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Surely, must God do this. By the way, the conquest of Canaan was prophesied since Abraham. It was part of the Abraham covenant that God would give him and his lineage this redemptive blessing. It's part of the fulfillment of the physical part of the Abrahamic covenant that God would rescue them, even, even, even stating that they will be in bondage for a 400-year season. That entails God being sovereign in all the elements that leads up to this point of revival and also conquest. Boy, is God active in human affairs, is he not? Right? I just think it was very significant that when they left Egypt, it said that they, were, they left it 400 years to the day. Right. That's right. That statement alone just uh, screams God's sovereignty. And no matter what the fallout is in this nation that's literally into its going back to its, you could say, uh, well, I should say going back to the world's pagan roots. Because we're more pagan than we are anything else within the world. Um, the question is, is that what kind of trial and tribulation we'll experience but the Christian can never lose sight that God is in control. And all we have to do is go back to our Old Testament and see the outworkings of God working in human history and saying, where is his favor? His favor is upon us. Just like the children of Israel, his favor was upon them. If you want any other proof, go to is it Acts chapter 4. Yes, Acts chapter 4, where basically all the events of, uh, of those who persecuted Jesus and eventually martyred him are listed. And that God says he ordained it all. Denise. Because you pointed these verses out, he says it four times in chapter 1, be strong and courageous. But the very last chapter, he says, fear God and serve him only. Mm-hmm. It Excellent. just struck me that you know if you fear God rightly, right. then you're going to be strong and courageous because you won't fear man. That's right. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't look at the other God. That's the ultimate paradox, isn't it? Mm-hmm. 
The Christian knows the difference. The question is, though, can we put one foot forward and say, fear says, I don't want to go in this direction, but I'm going to keep walking anyways because it's the Lord's will. Right? That's really what it is. Sometimes we have to just physically put the foot in front of the other before actually our faith catches up to truly believing that God's going to... Well, as the scripture says, when your heart is grieved, it is the path. God knows the path in which you will walk, right? So Jericho, I, A-I, where the Amorites lived, are the first two cities destroyed. They were destroyed so completely that the Canaanite, Hittites, Perizzites, and Hivites gathered together. Listen, we're arch enemies, but we've got to get together to destroy Israel, this one and only God who has done these great miracles. And the battle occurs in Gibeon where, and that's a different story for another day, but Gibeon is the place where the city and its leaders deceived Joshua. And they were preserved by their deception. But that is the place, end up where this great big battle, you could almost say pre-Armageddon battle, occurs. Now God aided Israel by throwing large hailstorms from heaven against the fleeing army and God stopped the sun from setting. Now, we by faith believe that. There are some crazy things that you and I must believe. But then I always go back to the wedding of Canaan. And whenever somebody says to me, well, empirical evidence says these things are not so. And I say, well, Jesus, in the presence of witnesses, who were also accompanied by other eyewitnesses in a historical period of time, which no one doubts, not even secular uh, historians doubt that Jesus lived as a person and did these things. Others witnessed it when he turns water into wine and circumvents all of the law of physics. And then you have a problem still of the splitting of the Jordan or the splitting of the Red Sea or the stopping of the sun. He either directs the course of the thunderbolt or he does not. Right? Yeah, and far more fantastic than any of those things is that the fullness of God would dwell in the form of man. That's right. You know, that's the, the chief miracle. Right? If you accept that, everything else is, is less than that, but that God would be found in the form of created flesh. And that's the greatest mystery. It is. And, and here, I, go ahead. Quoting somebody else, you know, believe in the rest of the world, whatever about Scripture, if the Scripture says that Jonah swallowed the whale, I would believe that. <laughs> I know, I don't know if I remember saying that, but yeah. 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 <clears throat> God gave great wisdom and strength to Joshua to finish the campaign. Literally, the text says in chapter 10, utterly destroying all who breathed because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for them. Mm-hmm. He fought for them. But he also destroyed sin and the sinners who committed it. There is a day of judgment to which is pre-typified, you could say, by the campaign in Canaan where Joshua is a type of Christ coming to deliver his people, to cause his people to live in a, in a land that is filled with milk and honey, a land, a new land where there will be no more sin. And God is the one who will literally trash this earth. God, Christ, will come in judgment, and the liberals hate that. They hate 
they don't can't think that this loving person named Jesus could ever judge anybody. And he will utterly destroy this earth as Joshua did. And everything that had breath will die. God's wrath against Canaan is complete, and or so it seems. But Joshua did not burn every city. Some of the, some of the giants of the Anakins survived. The tribes of Israel also did not complete driving out of the inhabitants of the territory that they were given. And that was their independent tribal responsibility. And they said in Judges, it says in Judges 128, they did not drive them out completely. Contrary to God's command. That's right. That's right. We, we, this is the tendency of every Christian still today. It's the tendency of any believer. Well, maybe I can forge a path that helps God out a little bit. Right? I think one of the greatest challenges is, because I think this is where many churches have fallen and they ended up in heresy, well, maybe we can make God a little bit more palatable. Right? Maybe we can forge a path that's not as confrontational, not as offensive. Maybe we can fight the good fight of faith without making God out to be this judgmental God. Right? And when we start making excuses for God, I do not make excuses for Joshua. I say, if you want to see the ramifications of your sin, go to the book of Joshua. Or some other book. But I will not will not compromise God's character because I will answer for that someday. So there's several applications that come with the book of Joshua. I've got five minutes here. God demands justice against evil nations and evil people. The question is, what does justice look like today? Right? Have we really gone into a whole different stratosphere on redefining justice? If we establish a rule or a principle of justice in our modern era that has God absent from it, well, we do not have justice. It does not exist without God. And the ultimate true understanding of justice is, do you deserve punishment from God? And if you don't believe that, I don't care, you can wax eloquently till the cows come home. Old farmer saying. Till the cows come home that I know what justice is. You may even be in the White House and say, I know what justice is. But if you don't fear God first, if you don't believe that you deserve justice because you're a sinner in the presence of a holy God, you don't understand justice at all. At all. It's the very means that God uses to save us. Why would we jettison it 20, 25 years later after we get saved for some worldview that doesn't make any sense? A whole new worldview of justice. Secondly, God demands faithfulness from his people while God meets out the justice. We are to be happy in the way God rules this world. It may not go the way you and I think it should go, but it's his justice, it's his timing. His cup of wrath takes time to fill. Thirdly, obedience to God, his commands, and his covenant with us is critical. We have made a commitment to him. The Holy Spirit indwells you. He has sealed you for the, re, for the day of redemption. And therefore, he requires obedience of his children. If you want to go, if you want your life to go obscure to a way that you didn't, 
think it should go, then start sinning and be outside of the will of God. That will change your life dramatically. Personal sin, number four, must be removed. This pains me as much as it does you. It is the hardest thing we will ever do, is strive to be sanctified in Christ, to crucify sin, to kill it, and we will never be fully able to do it. But Christ has already done that and finished that complete work on the cross. What we could not do, he did for us, living the perfect life and dying on the cross, giving us his righteousness in order that we might be holy in his presence and not be judged with the rest of the nations. Personal sin must be removed. The alternative is to fall prey to the seductions of the nations as we live within this world and we don't want to fall in the same place that Israel fell. Listen to this text. Psalm 46, verse 2 and verse 11. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Think of it. The world is changing all the time from generation to generation. We just live in one of those periods of times where it seemed to change all at once. There's great fear and trepidation about that change. We believe that the fight has lost already. Right? What is all those efforts of the 20th century fighting for truth? And we lost. The secular, the secular uh, pundits have said we've lost. We've lost the culture wars. But God knows about the change. He's ordained the change. And we must be faithful as God was faithful to Jacob as well. The God of Jacob is also our stronghold. He's the same God of yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. That's the beauty about the world changing is that God doesn't change and there's nothing new under the sun for God. We should see things like God in relationship to the change upon this earth, this nation. We see change, we expect change, but God doesn't change. And therefore, I know God is in control. He's ordained to change and things will change again. There's nothing new under the sun. And therefore, Joshua was victorious. The nation still was not perfect, just like the church of God is not perfect. But we do have a captain of hosts who controls all things in heaven and on earth and will deliver us from our sin ultimately and permanently for the glory of God. Let's finish in prayer. Father, we thank and praise you. We express our love to you this day. We long for worship, O Lord, of you in the corporate body as well. We have learned now, O Lord, of the ways of God. Let us now express it in our human emotion and will with our praises, our prayers, with our songs, and with our listening of our ears, O Lord, to truth again. For the glory of your name. Amen. Do I just push record? Uh, yeah. Just push that again. Just